Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and we are grateful and thankful for your mercies uh, for this day. Uh, we need them every day and you've promised and you've promised them every day. Lord, uh, we thank you that you uh, command us uh, not to be troubled, uh, but to trust in God and in you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that command. Uh, the very fact that you command us not to be troubled in itself is a promise that you will keep us safe in the truest sense. Lord, um, thank you for being our Redeemer. Father, we ask for clarity and understanding your word and that through that you would equip us to walk more worthy of the calling that you've called us. And uh, <clears throat> that would be a blessing if you would cause your word to penetrate deep into our minds and hearts and that it is the bread of life because it points to you as the bread of life. Lord, we pray for our nation and we're grieved at the direction we've been on and we know that you must have great patience uh, for we are worthy, uh, we are worthy of judgment uh, many times over, and yet you've extend your day of mercy, Lord. Uh, we pray for our children and the generation following us that one way or another you would extend mercy to them, and that you would call them and make them your people, Lord. Um, <clears throat> Thank you for this. Uh, we ask that you'd give us power as a church to spread your gospel faithfully and not be ashamed of it. And Lord, you would uh, enable us to lose our lives for Christ and your gospel's sake and help us understand what that means in various situations. We pray in your great name. Amen. Okay, we have reached the end of the Gospels uh, with the Ascension. And we'll have, I'm going to split the class here today between a little bit between history and theology. Even though I went over 20 minutes last week, I still didn't finish. <laughs> so I promise not to go over 20 minutes tonight. Uh, unless you ask some questions that, that take us 20 minutes over. That isn't why we went 20 minutes over last uh, last week, but we just had a lot of material to cover. So um, we're at the very end here of Jesus's 40 days. We've been in this post-resurrection period for about nine weeks, I think. All of the events and things that transpired during those 40 days, often that's some of the least studied parts of the gospel. I could say that about myself. So I've I've enjoyed going through those 40 days in some detail. And so we come up then to Acts chapter 1 here in verse 9. I'm back up a little bit in, um, in ver uh, Luke's introduction here. Uh, in verse 3 that Luke is showing us that Jesus being seen by them 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We went through that quite a bit. But this is those final days that Jesus was with them. Um, multiple times, we don't know how many times, this statement makes it sound like that he was with them quite a bit. You know, seen, seen by them during, for, during 40 days. And so... We have their interaction about the kingdom. I'm not going to read those verses over again. And what he says here then, after he tells them to wait in Jerusalem, in uh, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we can tell they still don't, quite understand that by the very fact of the question that they ask. Lord, is it, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so we can see they still haven't kind of gotten this to the end of the earth uh, part, but they will at the day of Pentecost. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, and then Luke lists the names of the apostles. We'll, we'll pick that up later. The ascension appears also, the account of the ascension appears also in Luke. And here, the, the Luke account is shorter. Now, Luke wrote both of these because we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. But in the Gospel of Luke, he has a shorter account, but it does have a little, other, a little additional information uh, for us. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Uh, he sends the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. We don't have that in the book of Acts. We have that from here. So they're gathered as far as Bethany, and uh, he, he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So those are our two accounts. Uh, where is there a third account? A bit of a trick question. We studied it a few weeks ago. It's in the Gospel of Mark. Remember our study, the latter section of, of, of Mark? 
whether it really was part of the original mark or not. Remember that discussion? Yeah. So the uh, the the um, I think it's an addition to the original Gospel of Mark, but even if it isn't, that section does have a brief account of the ascension in it. So uh, we could take that as an early historical document. Um, so I should just mention that 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 is that's there also. So. So during those previous 40 days, the disciples were still enjoying Jesus' physical presence. But as he told them 43 days ago, what was it 43 days ago? 43 days ago was the Passover supper. So he told them 43 days ago that where he's going, they cannot follow now. And that has now come true. They've been with him with a physical presence the last 40, 40 some days, but the last 40, the last 40 days, 43 days. But that's all going to come to an end now. So this time they know it for sure that the time of Jesus' physical departure is, uh, is over. And, uh, Disciples know that this day is Jesus' last day with them uh, with a physical presence. And if you just kind of enter into that, I mean, I, how would that feel? Okay, they, they have to accept it. He, it's never going to be like it's been all those three years. And that realization is sure, I'm sure, has dawned upon them. So, from Acts 1.12, we know that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, don't we? He led them out to the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And um, it was from this spot that Jesus began his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it was from this Mount where during that triumphal entry, Jesus sees the city and weeps over the city. This is the spot that all of these things have taken place, where, where, they're, where they're welcoming as a king, uh, and when he sees the city, he, he weeps over the city. It was at this mountain, at this place, where during that last week before the Lord's crucifixion, they sat on this mountain and as they were looking at the temple, Jesus, that's where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, from this spot, from this place. And now it's from this place that he, is, he blesses them and ascends into heaven. And not only that, what else is going to happen in the future at this place? Jack, you got it. It's at this place, according to Zechariah 4.4, that he is going to return. 14.4, 14, that's right. Zechariah 14.4. And it's, it's, it's this place. This is it. And uh, so, <clears throat> while they are staring up towards heaven, two men stood up, stood by them in white apparel, who said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Oh, yeah, it's just an ordinary day, you know. Why are you guys looking up into heaven? You know, I, I find it kind of funny. Like, I'd probably be staying there staring up into heaven, too. 
So I guess the angels think, you know, this is, you know, why are you standing there staring up into heaven? Maybe there's a little bit of uh, encouragement or reproof there. Uh, kind of like, well, let's, you know, let's get on, get on with it. Uh, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so we have a bodily resurrection, don't we? We have a bodily ascension, and we're going to have a bodily return. Okay, the Son of God will never be divorced from from his humanity. Think about that. The, the, the effect of the incarnation upon the eternal Son of God will never be undone. He will forever be the God-man in this one person we call the Messiah or Jesus Christ. And so as he ascended in that bodily form that, and, and was resurrected in body, he is going to return in the same, in the same way as you saw him go. Okay. So how long they stood staring into heaven before the angels arrived, we, we don't know. It seems that the angels' question is a slight exhortation. Guys, it's time to move on. However, the angels do reassure them, as I've already said, that Jesus will return. So he's gone, but not forever. Now, it's not in your notes, but after this experience, what part of Jesus' teaching should kind of be popping off in all of our heads? He's gone. He's ascending. This same Jesus will return. So what, what should be popping off in, in our heads? about Jesus' teaching. Well, yes, but I mean, what the angel told them there, what does that remind us of regarding a theme in Jesus' teaching? He's, he's departing, he's gone, and yet he's going to come back. It's, it's, a, it's a type of teaching, it's a form of teaching that Jesus used a lot. That's a clue. Yes, the form of teaching is a parable. And what is one of the themes in a whole bunch of those kingdom parables? Yeah, and, and what is it like? What's the what's the common theme of a bunch of those parables? You go. What no? What which relates to this, Mark? Be ready. Be ready, and the theme is the absent Lord, the absent Master. Right, a man. He went. Uh, you know, he went and. Um, uh, he gave, he gave all the servants the talents, and then he left and said, do business till I return. There's a bunch of parables that they're all structured around. He left, and he's going to return. And so that's exactly the message here. He's ascending into heaven, 
And what? This same Jesus will return as you've seen him ascend. And so he's going to fulfill all those parables that he's going to be absent, but he's going to return. You know? And you don't know, and you're right, Mark, you don't know when he's going to return. He's going to be absent, and you don't know when he's going to return. And that, and, but he is going to return. And so that's just the theme in, in uh, Jesus' parables. And I think, you know, these angels remind us of, of, that, of that theme. Um, so, okay. Those words are very comforting and encouraging for all of us. He will return. And uh, when and when will this same Jesus return? We don't know. We don't know the date. But when the mission they are about to begin is completed, he will return. Had he not told them, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay. That was part of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to all the nations, and when that is done, um, then, then he will, the end will come, and he, he will return. So, questions or comments about about the ascension here? Would you would you say that the statement "Occupy until I come" of Revelation uh, is really is really uh, referencing his command to the the disciples as he was before just make disciples would you say the uh, the occupy of uh, occupy until I come is uh, in other words, we're not we're not to be we're not to pre be preoccupied about other things but occupy until I come would be occupied in the occupation of of making disciples of all nations baptizing them and and so forth you know i am actually i'm drawing a scriptural blank on that expression okay could somebody tell tell me where that verse is, what you're referring to, where uh, he says, "Occupy until I come"? Yes, I, I think it's. Um, I believe it's in the book of Revelation. Okay. Uh, I don't have it. In the yeah, book. I'm. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I can't answer your question, Jack, because I'm actually. I'm not familiar with uh, that verse or that passage. But I. I will look it up and and I'll try to respond to your question. Uh, next week, okay? I'll have to find a passage and, and, and look that up. Uh, we do know the, the, the church, beginning with the disciples, are to be involved in that Great Commission. And we, we studied the Great Commission text a couple months ago. Well, I mean a couple weeks ago. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so, uh, Sandy, pass the microphone over to Sandy. I have a question. Uh, it might not be the time for it, but a question about uh, John baptizing with water. 
Oh, and, uh, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the and how that relates. Apparently, the Holy Spirit didn't come when John baptized with water, and that whole uh, maybe is that under theology that you'll touch on later. Um, you know, uh, no, it's not. So we could discuss that now. Uh, let's back up here to Acts chapter eight. Where does he, Jesus make that contrast? It's not here in Acts chapter 8. No, it's in... Um, John baptized you with water, <clears throat> but a few days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay. <laughs> it's right under our nurses. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay, <clears throat> and being assembled together with them, he commanded them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, the promise of the Father uh, is the promise of John chapter 14. I will send you the Holy Spirit. If I depart, then the Father, I will send you the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water... Okay, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, yes, uh, John's baptism with water was not the promise of the Father, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism with water was a baptism for unto repentance, and it was associated with the confession of sin. And... So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. Like in Joel chapter 2, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And 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 in Jer and in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Ezekiel, all of those passages that talk about the blessing of the Holy Spirit, that comes when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, okay, after his resurrection and ascension. Okay, so um, that's, what's being, that's what's being referred to here. Does that help, or I'm, I'm not getting close enough to your question. Go ahead. Well, these days when someone comes to Christ or when they're converted, yes. it's understood that when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit at that time. Yes. And that's different than, no. than back here? Um, well, oh, is it different now than during the Old Covenant, right? When you said back here, you mean... Well, when John baptized with water. Right. John was still baptizing during in the Old Covenant period, and it is true, it is definitely different because the fullness of the Holy Spirit for the people of God was not poured out until Jesus' ascension. And let me, let me show you a verse. This will help clear it up. In John chapter 7. Okay. John 7. And... Uh, the last day of the feast. Right, here it is. Okay. On the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay? So, Jesus is glorified, if you want to pin it down to an exact spot, it's when he ascends and sits down at the right hand of God. So, this, this blessing of the Holy Spirit is one of the benefits, blessings that comes from Jesus' fulfilling the, the will of the Father and uh, dying and rising. So then the purpose of John baptizing with water was what? To let the people know uh, that they had repented? Or what was the purpose of baptizing with water by John? Okay, John the Baptist baptism is a very difficult subject in the New Testament. One thing for sure is it's an old covenant ordinance. Okay, we're not, we're not in the New Covenant yet. Okay, and the mark that we're in the New Covenant, actually the, the sign that we're in the New Covenant is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 2. So John's baptism has to do with preparing the people. In other words, the prophet said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? He will be like a refiner's fire and fool of soap. And the voice in the wilderness is what? Prepare the way of the Lord. The problem is the people aren't ready. And so John's ministry is saying, hey guys, the Lord is coming. You're not ready. And what you need to do to be ready is to repent. And those that actually repented, he baptized. And so the baptism there was a symbolism of the fact that there is forgiveness with God, and if they repent, their sins can be washed away. Something of that nature. That there is that they their sins can be forgiven if they repent. And of course, John refused to baptize those that had no evidence of repentance. Um, so that's about as good as I can do without digging out some of my notes <laughs> on the passage from, from memory. So does that help a little more? It, it does. So the people who were baptized by John could look forward to the day when they would receive the Holy Spirit. That is correct. The baptism of John was not equivalent to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is promised here in John chapter 7, once Jesus is exalted. And, and again, the Joel, uh, the Joel prophecy, let's look at that. Um, Uh, it's Joel chapter 2. This will this, help also. 
and the Joel prophecy is fulfilled um, on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, Joel chapter 2, after a period of judgment, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Okay? This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And it's in the future here from Joel. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See, there's no distinction here. The men and women, the young and old, they all are blessed with the, with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I will show wonders in the heavens, fire and smoke. On the day of Pentecost, we had the symbolism of fire. Uh, the tongues, uh, tongues of fire were on all, you know, on, to, on their heads, and that's the symbolism of this passage. And uh, and the passage ends. It's interpreting the prophets is a challenge. It will, it, I think, it always will be until the Lord returns and fulfills it all. But I think this passage covers from the the, the first coming. The, the beginning of Christ's exaltation all the way down to his second coming. Okay? And, and, and here we have the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome or great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, this is the free off of the gospel right here, okay? Now my mouse is sticking. Uh, <clears throat> that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, that's the gospel dispensation right there. During this, between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And what should that trigger in your mind as soon as you hear the phrase, all flesh? What does that trigger? What's that? Not just the Jews, it's All humanity. It's Jews, what? And Gentiles. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Jews and Gentiles are going to receive this blessing. And that, of course, fits with what? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's a... Uh, so this is, this is uh, Sandy, this is another text that's telling us about about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Yeah. Good question. No. Any, anybody, anybody else um, with a question? Okay. Well, uh, take off your historical hat and put on your, your theology hat. And uh, what remains for us to do before we proceed uh, beyond the Gospels is there's some key theological issues in these latter chapters that I, I want to emphasize a little bit. And the first group of them is there on page 261 that I'm calling High Christology Expressions. It just means a high or biblical view of the person of Christ. That Christ is not just a great teacher, that Christ is not just an angel, that Christ is not just a prophet, 
or Christ is not just a, you know, a wonderful humanitarian rabbi, okay? By high Christology, we mean Christ is actually the Son of God, <laughs> okay? Christ is the Messiah. <laughs> Those are high Christology expressions. And of course, we're contrasting ourselves with apostate Protestant liberal theology that has a very low Christology. Christ was just a great teacher. Or he was kind of a radical Jewish teacher. Okay, That's a low Christology. And so... The reason we believe in a high Christology is because the Bible plainly teaches it. Okay, that Christ is more than just man or human. He's divine. Okay, and so that's what we mean by that expression. And as we've gone through the Gospels, I've pointed out all the places where the Gospels teach a high Christology. And so we haven't hit them all. We have some that we haven't hit in the latter chapter. So that's what we're going to do here is we're going to hit those that we haven't hit. And if you go back to chapters 4 and 5, there's sections in each of those chapters on high Christology going all the way back to the great Galilean ministry. The great Galilean ministry was, was where Jesus' first year of ministry was. And there's plenty high Christology even in that, even in that period. But we're not going to go over those. We're only going to hit the ones we haven't hit. Okay? So now you know where we've been and where we are and where we're going. <laughs> so uh, one, of, one of the places we haven't touched is John chapter 10 and, and in verse 31. So let's, let's tackle that one here for the rest of our time this evening. Jesus having stated that he and his father ensure the salvation of all the sheep. Let's read it. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, referring to the sheep, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Okay. Now that is one of those high Christology statements. I and my Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown, from my, shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, so this is a passage we want to study. You can't be too familiar with these passages and uh, work through them. So... Um, so Jesus, having stated that he and his father ensure the salvation of all the sheep, makes this climactic statement about his relationship to the father. I and my father are one. Now this is the third time Jesus is on record of making statements which indicate his equality with the father. Making himself equal to God. In John chapter 5, we had a very similar incident 
the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay? And then, of course, in John chapter 8, Jesus made this claim, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So John 10 is in that category of passages here about equality with the, with, with the Father. Now, what, what did, there's a couple things going on here. There's what Jesus means, and there's what the hearers are understanding. And that isn't necessarily the same in this passage. And, and I'm not absolutely clear on some of the distinctions of who's understanding what in some places on this passage, uh, but it certainly is a high Christology passage. And, and, and here's why I'm saying that. Uh, uh, is this a functional oneness? I and the Father are one. Is this a functional oneness? I'll explain that. Or is this an ontological oneness? You see, in John 10.30, in the statement, I and the Father are one, it's neuter. One is neuter, not masculine. If one were masculine, Jesus would be saying, he and the Father are the same person. A number of widows are in here. Uh, you weren't all at our... Were you with us? No. You're not a widow. What am I talking about? <laughs> Some of you. We had a discussion. You three. This is a test. What did we have a discussion about in our last widows meeting? It began with an M. A theological term. Oh, you weren't at the last meeting? All right, Linda and Thelma, <laughs> it's up to you two. No, I wasn't there either, and I left early. <laughs> modalism. Modalism. Okay, this text kind of relates to modalism, doesn't it? I'll explain. Stick, stick with us. You see, if the one were masculine, Jesus would be saying that he and the Father are the same person. And we know that's not true. Okay? That's called modalism. There aren't really, there aren't really three persons. There's only one God. Okay? It's kind of like modalism. But, but Jesus didn't use the masculine uh, <clears throat> one there. And so... Um, and, and we, of course, know that the Father and the Son are not the same person. So the question is, I and the Father are one what? <laughs> That's the question. That's the exegetical question. I and the Father are one what? <laughs> okay. What is that oneness referring to in this passage? That's the question. Now, a functional oneness means a oneness of person or goal, uh, of purpose. A, a, a functional oneness means a oneness of purpose or a goal. An ontological oneness means Jesus and the Father 
are of the same nature or essence. Now the context supports that Jesus had in mind a functional oneness. Jesus and his Father have the same purpose to give eternal life to all the sheep the Father has given the Son. You see how that's a functional oneness? I give them eternal life. Jesus gives them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now what about the Father? Well, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all what? And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what? Father and Son have exactly the same goal or purpose. To make the sheep secure. So you, if this is a functional oneness, so it means this then, I and my Father are of one mind and purpose. We are of the same purpose and the same mind that none of these sheep are going to be lost. Okay, that's, that's a functional oneness. We're, we are of the same purpose, the same function. Now, what's interesting, though, is the Jews did not understand it that way. They understood it as an ontological oneness, meaning father and son have the same essence and nature. That's how they understood it, and we know that because of what they said. They wanted to stone him, and Jesus says, many good works I've, I've shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? They, they answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you... See, now, now we're talking about ontology. You being a man, your essence is that you are a man and nothing more than a man. You being a man, what? Make yourself out, of, yourself out as if you're God. They understood the oneness in that ontological sense. Okay? Let's let that sink in. Just, you see that? The context sounds like Jesus is saying, I and my Father are of one purpose. We're of one mind. We lose none of the sheep. They don't understand it that way. They understand that, that Jesus is making a claim to be God, to be equal with God. Okay. So, I, I, are you with me? I think you're with me. <laughs> okay. That's a big word, but we have to use big words sometimes in order to accurately define, you know, to talk about these things. And so... And this is exactly what they did in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus made this statement. I, my my, uh, up until now, my father has been working, and I myself am working. And they wanted to stone him there because he called God his father. The way he said God was his father, making himself equal with God is what they thought, the way he called God his Father. And of course, they were right, and of course, Jesus is equal with the Father. So, 
Now, <clears throat> what happens next is how Jesus responds to them at this point. And, um, yeah, significantly we see in verse 33, okay, well, I saw that now. We already know from John's Gospel clearly enough that Jesus is equal with the Father, or God, and Jesus is not making himself out to be anything which he isn't. Although he professes equality with the Father, he is not, as they believe, setting himself up as another deity. Okay? Their charge is, you're setting yourself up as another deity. You being man, you're making yourself out God, out to be God. Well, Jesus is obviously not doing that. Now, they, of course, do not understand this. But we do, having the benefit of all of John's Gospel and additional Scripture beyond John's Gospel. Now, this limited amount of data which they had may partially explain... May partially explain the lengths to which Jesus goes and what follows. And Jesus almost seems to be saying in what follows, you don't need at this moment at least to agree that I am ontologically equal with the Father. And in the following verses, Jesus condescends to their limitations and demonstrates tremendous patience. Look what he does in these verses that follow. Okay, the Jews say, you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And of course it is written in the law, it's written in Psalm 82. And Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, where the psalmist um, calls them God. Verse 35, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. Now, what is going on here? Um, okay. So first off, Psalm 82, to whom the word of God came. Who these people are in Psalm 82 is notoriously difficult <laughs> to figure out. Is it prophets? Is it judges? Is it kings? Is it Israel's judge? But none of that matters as far as Jesus' argument goes here. Jesus' argument, he's saying, look guys, Psalm 82 calls these folks in... The author of Psalm 82, and it's the word of God, it can't be broken, calls these whatever, calls them gods. So why are you so upset that I said I am the Son of God. That's how he responds to them. Which is a great condescension. He condescends and 
gives them an, tries to give them an argument so they can get through this and not have to, at this point, believe that he is equal with God ontologically. He's lowered the standard in this, by what he's doing with Psalm, 80, Psalm 82 here. You see, he's reasoning. Let me, let me, let me, let me read my, my notes here. This, you need some precision here. Um, so, he gives this gracious, and he gives this gracious exhortation to faith in verses 37 through 38. Um, uh, let, me, let me back up here. Yeah, he reasons in the, he, he reasons if, he's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He reasons if Scripture in Psalm 82 can call judges or whoever gods, and the Messiah is much greater than these, verse 36, how can they be offended if he said, I am the Son of God? See that? The Messiah is obviously greater than those in Psalm 82. And, and who is the Messiah? The Messiah is described right here. Do you say of him, the Messiah, what? Whom the Father sanctified, that means set apart, right? What? And sent into the world. Jesus there is referring to himself. Do you say you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So, if you don't have a problem with Psalm 82, you shouldn't have a problem with me, who am the Messiah, (laughs) calling myself the Son of God. You shouldn't have any problem with that. And then he goes on and makes a very gracious invitation. If I do not do the works of my Father... Do not believe me. So what he does now, he shifts. Stop thinking about me for a moment and look at the works. Think about the works. Think about the works. That's what he's doing. Forget about me thinking I'm God. Think about the works. That's what he's saying. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works. That's very gracious. Forget about me. If you don't believe me, forget about me. Believe the works. What? That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he backs off of I and the Father are one. He doesn't repeat that you may know that I and the Father are one. He backs off of that. Now he makes another high Christology statement. Okay, I'm not denying that this next statement, that is also a high Christology statement. But you know what might be offending them about 
I and the Father are one, what do you think they might be hearing? From Deuteronomy chapter 6. What? The Shema, the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, what? Is one. Perhaps that's what they're hearing. Okay? But if Jesus comes down here, he expresses this differently, that, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So, um, now what he doesn't compromise on, and not compromise is not the right word, lowering the bar, is um, they have to believe this. No, I'm sorry, that the Father has sent me. They have to believe of him whom the Father sanctified, what? And sent into the world. They have to believe that Jesus is sent from the Father into the world. They have to get to that step first. They can get to the ontological equality later. They will never get to the ontological equality until they actually say, this man is from God. (laughs) No man can do the works that this man does unless God is with him. They are not to that point that Nicodemus was early in John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus had already gotten to this point here in John 10. Nicodemus came by night, and he was convinced that Jesus was sent from God. Okay? And so Jesus, I think, he does lower the bar here and reason with them that they, they must believe that he is the sent one from the Father. The Father set him apart and sent him into the world. And uh, that... That's a key in the Gospel of John. It comes up over and over again, is that we must believe that he's from the Father. Um, and, and interesting, G, and Jesus says, you know, that I am the Son of God. Now, what is that? What, what kind of title is that? You're a Jew. What do you think when someone says they're the Son of God? Is that? Well, Daniel, but he's what? It's a messianic title, Messiah. I am the Son of God. That's a claim to be the Messiah. Okay, the anointed one. And so Jesus is telling them, they not only do, must they believe that he's sent into the world, but they must come to the conclusion that he is what? The Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, uh, Psalm 110. So, but the issue of ontological equality, I think he, he lowers the bar. Now, did Jesus intend to, say, to, to defend ontological equality when he said, I and the Father are one? I honestly don't know. I, 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 honest, I honestly don't know. Um, so, okay. There must be a question. 
Yes, David Barraza says, didn't the Jews understand that only God gives eternal life? Couldn't they have understood Jesus here making himself God and that he said he can give eternal life also? Uh, yes, that could be an equal work, that, that the Father and Son do equal works. Yeah, that's, that could be an equality statement. Uh, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a good insight. I don't know about the Jews only thought that, well, that's probably true, that, yeah, only God could give eternal life. They, they believed in the resurrection. Um, yeah, I, think, I just have to think about that. We got an online question. Oh, from the Philippines, right? Is David in the Philippines? Is he there with his wife? If he's listening to us, let us know, David. <laughs> we actually have, oh, it's 10 after. I said, well, I said I wouldn't go till 20 after. <laughs> actually, we have, um, we, we have two listeners from the Philippines, we've discovered. Is Mary's uh, Marianne's sister has been following our class in the Philippines? So, okay, we're going to have to stop. It is ten after, and uh, so this is what we mean by doing theology. Okay, <laughs> instead of history, we're, we're doing theology now. Great, you know, the Gospel of John is just full of wonderful theology about God and who Christ is. And I know, I know, you might be a little. You know, you've been a proof texter on John chapter 10, right? You just proof text the one verse and, and argue with the, with the Arians. I've wanted to stretch you a little bit to really think through that whole thing contextually as to what these people are thinking about. And uh, so, uh, let's see, where is the microphone? Uh, let's, Hugo, we're going to ask Hugo to... To lead us in prayer. Give it to Richard and uh, Hugo will pick it up. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight to study uh, the majesty and wonder, Lord, that you are. Thank you for condescending to us, Lord, and in this uh, upcoming season, we're reminded of the, the miraculous promises, Lord, that you had promised beforehand from the prophets, mm -hmm. and we see this fulfilled, Lord, when you sent your only begotten Son uh, to take on flesh and dwell amongst us and to bear with all with sinners and to make a way, a blood-bought way, for that we would be right with you, Lord. But not just that, Lord, be transformed and be changed and forever be your people. We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge of such things. As the psalmist says, this is too wonderful for us to consider. I also ask, Lord, for uh, traveling mercies as we head back home or uh, wherever we may be going, Lord. We just know uh, we are a blessed people because of you. We ask all these things in your Son's holy, holy, holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.